Well, again, uh, welcome this morning. My name is George Davis. I want to thank you for being part of our services this morning. And, and I, too, want to thank those of you that have invested in the lives of these graduates over the years in different areas of ministry and friendship. And just thank you for your investment in their lives. And I say that not just as a pastor, but also as a dad. So thank you very much. I encourage you at some point just to take that pamphlet that is uh, introducing you to what our students are going to be doing and, and read that so you can be aware of just the different things our students are going to be doing now that they have graduated from high school. But having said that, let me ask you this question. If, if you had the opportunity to speak at a graduation, or maybe more specifically, if you had an opportunity really to speak into the lives of these students, what would you say? If you just had a few minutes just to speak to graduates, what, what would be your message? Now, my guess is many of us, uh, we, we would want to encourage them, right? We want to just say, hey, this is an, I know this is a transition, but this is an exciting season. You've got your life ahead of you, and we want to encourage you to take the opportunities that are in front of you and go for it and dream big if you're going to school or work, whatever that looks like, just kind of embrace that. We'd encourage them to follow Christ, to be men and women of character, and just to embrace the opportunities that are in front of them. But I think having said that, we would also be aware that, you know, sometimes graduation speeches are deeply naive, aren't they? Right? I mean, you've sat through some of those that just seem to be, oh, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. And, and somehow the graduation speech leaves out the reality that life can be hard. It can throw setbacks and obstacles at you. You're going to encounter things that you didn't expect, sometimes things you don't deserve. And you can find that in relationships and family and the workplace. And so... Uh, part of us, would, we would just want to acknowledge that even as we encourage these students, we, we also want them to not get sidetracked by the, the obstacles that are going to come their way. And so perhaps in some sense, what we would hope for you guys is that you would you know, learn to navigate life well, to learn to take wise choices and make wise decisions and in many ways, this morning, we're, a, we're actually going to start a book of the Bible that communicates this, this kind of message. This morning, we're going to start a two-month series through this little book in the New Testament called Titus. So I'd encourage you, if you've got a Bible, to turn with me toward the back of your Bibles to the short little book called Titus. And if, if I could summarize this book simply, I I would say it this way. The invitation of Titus is simply an invitation to live well and do good. It's an invitation to live well and do good. And you know what? I think that's a message our graduates need to hear as they're graduating and moving into new seasons of life. But it's also a message we need to hear as a church, wherever we are in this journey of, of following Jesus Christ. The message to live well and do good. And, and we're going to see as, as Paul talks about living well, he, he's really talking about living deeply. And by that I mean this, he, living lives that are deeply rooted in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. We'll see in chapter two that he says it's really, it's God's grace, it's God's initiative in our lives that becomes the motivation for living well, for living deeply. It's, It's rooted in the gospel, it is rooted in God's initiative. 
But we're also going to see as we go through this book that he says this life of living well overflows into the lives of other people. So if you pay careful attention to this little book, you'll, you'll find in different ways we keep coming back to this, this idea of doing good or doing good works. And so kind of the vision that this book sets before us, a vision our graduates need to hear, but a vision we need to hear as well is, is this vision of living well and doing good. Now, as we start, let me, let me just give you a little bit of background about this book. Titus is one of three letters in the New Testament, sometimes referred to as the pastoral letters or the pastoral epistles. They are called that for this reason. Unlike really most of the letters that Paul the Apostle wrote, these letters aren't written directly to churches. Instead, they're written directly to church leaders. So we have two written to Timothy and one written to Titus. Titus was an associate of the Apostle Paul. We see him uh, referenced in several of the New Testament books. And what becomes clear is Titus was a guy that Paul deeply entrusted, even with hard assignments and hard situations. And part of the challenge that that Titus is faced with now is he is working on this island, the island of Crete. Now we know from Acts chapter two, right? Remember the day of Pentecost, kind of the, kind of the, the birth of the church as, as we know it, where these Jews from all over the Mediterranean world had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival and and thousands become converted to Christianity. We know from Acts chapter 2 that there were people there from, Car- uh, from Crete. And quite possibly this, this contributed to the start of the early Christian movement in Crete, that they took the message of Jesus back. And so now we see Titus, he is, he's been commissioned to work on Crete, to continue the Christian movement, to work with these Christians and, and help develop these young churches with the goal that they would be people who lived well and who do good. Now, one author has described Titus this way as a crisis intervention specialist. And uh, it is true that there were some complicating factors for Titus as he's working with these early believers in Crete. And maybe the, the biggest complicating factor was cultural. You see, Crete was in many ways a chaotic place to live. And here's what I mean by that. The culture of Crete was a culture where people were known to do anything to get ahead, whatever it took. Lying, cheating, cutting corners, corruption, whatever it took for you to get ahead, that's what you did. And this was valued in this culture. In fact, from from 20 to 70 AD, in that 50-year time window, there were five Roman governors of Crete who were called back to Rome to face corruption charges. And the deal is, you know what? When in Crete, you do like everybody else does. It was a chaotic place to live. I mean, later in the book, we'll see Paul quotes a ancient philosopher who says all Cretans are liars. Man, it feels like that's a horrible stereotype in the Bible. But yet what Paul is doing, he's just acknowledging what was widely known in the ancient world, that that this island culture was a chaotic place because it was a place where people thought you could do anything to get ahead. It was a place filled with deception for that reason. 
And it was also known as a place where because there was so much deception in the air, people could easily be deceived. Now, this widespread exception, uh, or excuse me, this widespread acceptance of deception in this culture really goes back to the history of Crete. Because you, you see, the history of Crete is associated with this figure. This is Zeus from Greek mythology. And according to Greek mythology, Zeus was born in Crete. Crete was his home. And of course, in the legends, the stories told about Zeus, he was a guy who was willing to cut corners to get ahead. Homer describes Zeus as a lover of lies. So if you grow up in Crete, if it, if it were good enough for Zeus, it's good enough for you. I mean, imagine growing up in a cultural environment where cheating, deception, lying is, is just part of the way we do. That's just the way we operate. And we value it. We accept it. That's just part of who we are as a culture. So Titus has his work cut out for him. And, and so what, what Paul is doing in this letter is he's equipping Titus now to work in this environment. And he's equipping Titus in such a way that it's like he says, now, Titus, you've got, you've got to work in this environment so people don't, don't just go with the flow culturally. So people understand that as, as Christians, they've been called to be distinctive. They're not just going to fit into this culture of deception and cheating and lying. They've been called to live well. But likewise, Titus, you don't, you don't want people just to withdraw, to isolate themselves, or to get hung up, hung up on rules and legalism as a response to their culture. And apparently there was the danger of them doing that. We don't want them just to withdraw and retreat. We want them to, to do good, to live out their faith in this chaotic culture. So what Paul is doing in this letter, he is, he's equipping Titus and ultimately equipping us so that we can be people who live well and do good. With that in mind, let's now, let's just come to the opening greeting of the letter. Titus chapter one, reading verses one and following. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our savior. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Now, this is typical of ancient letters. It's a greeting, and we learn about the author. And as we learn about Paul here, part of what we learn is this. He has a passion for seeing people live well. And that's part of what I think he's wanting to communicate to Titus so that he can foster that in these early churches in Crete. Notice the way Paul describes his own sense of mission and his, his sense of call. First of all, he says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus to further the faith of God's elect, right? To help people come to faith and, and to grow up in that faith, that relationship with God, a deepening of that faith so that more and more they have a sense of identity rooted in God's initiative in their lives, 
But not only that, he says that his, his mission is to, to further the faith of God's elect and, and to further their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In other words, he, he wants them to grow up in the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge that we now have in the pages of scripture, but he wants them to understand that knowledge in a way that it leads to godliness. Now, let me ask you, when I, when I say the terms godliness or godly, what are the first things that come to your mind? My guess is for many of us, the thoughts may not be positive. And, you know, in some church circles, it feels like whenever, whenever somebody talks about being godly or godliness, they're, they're people who are uptight, right? Or straight-laced, or maybe people that have an edge or an attitude, kind of that holier than thou. There's a, there's a sense of condescension when we talk about being holy or godly. But, but that's, not, that's not what Paul is talking about here. The term that he uses, and it's a term he uses particularly in these three letters we know is the pastoral epistles. This, this term is, is a term to communicate the idea of authentic Christianity. When he talks about being godly, he's talking about a life of authenticity rooted in the gospel. A life that, where I'm living kind of from the inside out because of God's initiative in my life. And so this is Paul's mission, right? He says, here is what, I, I mean, you, you know, if when, when you cut Paul, this is the way he bleeds. I want to help people grow up in the faith. I want to help them understand the truth of the gospel in a way that shapes them into godliness. I want people to live well. That's driving Paul. And he's passing that on to Titus so that he can pass it on to people like us. I want you to live well. So what, what can we learn from just the way Paul describes his own life? Can I just show you two things? That if we're going to embrace this challenge of the book seriously, this idea of living well. Notice, first of all, that the, the, the living well that I think Paul is passionate about, first of all, it requires a framework. It requires a, a framework. And here's what I, I, I mean by this. If you look carefully at Paul's greeting at his introduction, notice that he refers to the past, he refers to the present, and he refers to the, to the future. There, there's a framework in which he operates. And notice, look, he, he can talk about the past, right? He says, he, he says that he's wanting to nurture the faith of God's elect, and that's the idea of God choosing people in the past, and he, he speaks of God who has promised eternal life, and he says this was promised before the beginning of time. And it may seem like, you know, he's just adding a lot of words to this introduction, but in talking about the past, notice what he is saying. He is saying that, that as believers in Jesus, we are people rooted in the promises of God that actually predate time as we know it. That who we are, our sense of identity is deeper. It's deeper than gender, race, ethnicity, nationality, vocation, life experience. Who we now are as followers of Jesus is, is rooted deeply in the promises of God that predate time itself. 
So that's how he talks, right? He talks about God making these promises of what God is going to do and bringing a people to himself and, and transforming us and bringing into relationship. All of these promises predate time as we know it. And you are now rooted in something that is that deep and that rich. But then when he talks about the present, he describes the present, right, as the time in which these promises, this, this truth is being known. And he says it's being known through preaching, which now at this appointed season he brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God and our Savior. So we are rooted in these promises that predate us in ways we can't fully understand or imagine. And now we live at a time where we are learning and being exposed to the truth of these promises and and what it means to live by them. And then he looks to the future and he says this... These promises were were going to find their ultimate fulfillment when God completes his plan. Right? Because he talks about this hope that we have of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Now, in one sense, eternal life has already started through the work of Christ, but there's an ultimate sense in which we experience eternal life in its final form when God completes his plan. So this framework that that shapes Paul is a framework rooted in the promises of God, these promises that predate time, of which we're now a part, that should shape our identity. These promises that we are now learning and in some ways experiencing as we engage the truth of Scripture. And these promises that will have their ultimate fulfillment in the future when God ultimately fulfills all that he's promised. And Paul, this is, this is the framework that shapes Paul. And I think this, this is the framework that he says you and I need to be shaped by as well. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Why does that matter? Well, Paul says, if you're a follower of Christ, your life, your life is now part of this story. And that may seem just theoretical. That may just seem like a big kind of theological idea that I can take or leave. But here is Here's why this is so important. The truth is, all of us are shaped by stories. Whether you realize it or not, the decisions you make this week, the thoughts you have, to some degree, those those patterns of thinking, those patterns of behavior, how you engage other people, those, those are shaped by stories. Stories from your past, formative stories in your family of origin. They're shaped by cultural messages, cultural stories that just kind of speak into our lives that we're not even aware of. It's just the way we think things are because this is a way culture tells us to engage other people or things culture tells us to prioritize. And sometimes the most powerful ideas are the ideas that are never spoken. They're just assumed. Furthermore, in some sense, each of us in our own way is shaped by some big story. And by that I mean this, we're shaped by some sense of how life works, of what makes life meaningful, what what we should pursue, how we find fulfillment, what it means to flourish. So even for you, you, as you guys graduate and you go into the workplace or you go into college, you are going to experience people at this very formative stage of life and each of whom has some story that says, this is what I want to do with my life, this is how I make life work. All of us have stories that shape us. Alistair McIntyre is one of the most influential philosophers of the last 50 years, and in one of his books, he makes this provocative claim. He states this. 
He says, before you can answer the question, what must I do? You must answer this question. Of which story or stories is my life a part? And what he's acknowledging there, all of us, whether we realize it or not, we're shaped by, we're shaped by stories about life. We're shaped by stories from our past. And you see, what, what Paul was wanting Titus to understand is, look, you're going, into this, you're going into this environment where all of these people are being shaped by all of these mythological stories and stories about how you cheat and get ahead, but they need to understand that as followers of Christ, they're now part of a different story. The story of God being faithful to his promises. Now, let, can I, let me just give you one practical example of maybe the difference this can make. Um, suppose I'm in a job and, you know, as it turns out, it's not the greatest workplace. I don't necessarily get along with my boss and, and we have some conflict and over time it gets worse. And maybe it, neither of us handle it well, but Maybe at some point I'm laid off, or maybe at some point I'm forced out. And I look at that situation, and, and there's just a sense of I wasn't treated fairly, and there's really nothing I can do about it. I mean, maybe I tried to the best of my ability when I was in that environment to, to make sure things went well, but it just it didn't, you know, I exhausted all the opportunities internally to deal with it well, and, and I just feel like that job didn't end well. I wasn't treated fairly. And so I moved on. I got a different job in the community. But you know what? From time to time, I see my former boss. Because, I don't know, you know, Central PA, it's a small area, you run into people. Maybe, you know, from time to time, I run into this, this guy or this gal at sporting events because our kids are in sports or something like this. And every time I see this person, it just, just brings up those negative emotions. And I, you know what? I'm a Christian, and I know I'm supposed to forgive, and I'm not supposed to hold grudges. And I've tried that, and I think I've tried to do it. But every time I see this person, it just, it just stirs all of it. And maybe my understanding of being a follower of Christ is simply, well, you, you, need, to do, you need to do the right thing to the best of your ability, and that's it. So begrudgingly, I, every time I see that person, I just try to say, okay, I'm not supposed to be angry, and... But to be honest with you, it doesn't always go well because I still have these feelings. But what if, what if I operate with this framework? What if rather than just seeing Christianity and following Christ as, well, you know, now, now that I'm, I'm, part of, I'm part of Christ's family, there are rules I have to keep or behaviors I have to endorse. What if I, what if I have a bigger vision to say, You know, being a follower of Christ means I'm now part of a different story that is shaping my life. A story rooted in the promises of God where I'm learning to live the promises of God and one day the promises of God will one day be fulfilled. What if every time I see this person and maybe those negative feelings start to kind of come up from the gut? And you know, sometimes, I mean, sometimes it it, it even affects us physically, right? If we've had a hard situation, maybe that wasn't resolved well, we we can feel the physical effects when we're reminded of that. What if the next time that happens, I just kind of remind myself, okay, this didn't turn out well, but in the promises of God, I know I can trust him. I know he will be faithful. 
He's promised to be faithful in my life, and I know he's a God of justice, and that justice will ultimately work its way out. Furthermore, I know that he is a God who is at work at times in ways that I can't fully understand or imagine. So, so the, what if the next time that happens, I just kind of, in, in, just, just in a, some sort of way, just remind myself, but I'm part of a different story. I'm not part of a story where I have to always come out on top or always have to get revenge. I'm, I'm part of a story where God is faithful to his promises, and that's the true story. That's the story of ultimate reality. And you see, when, when I come back to that reality that my life's part of this bigger story, it, it begins to change me. It begins to shape me. So I think at work in Paul's life, and I think part of his expectation for us as believers in, in terms of learning to live well, learning to allow the gospel to take root, is we've, we've got to have this framework in mind. This is why, for instance, you know, in multiple letters, when Paul can encourage Christians, he will say something like this. Live a, live a life worthy of the gospel or live a life worthy of your calling. And what he is saying in that language is, I want you to remember you are part of this story. Now live like it. Live with the recognition that this story is the true story. And once again, it may feel like you can take this or leave this, but remember, if you're not being shaped by this story, you are, you're being shaped by other stories. So Paul says you, you need to develop this framework. And I think along with this framework comes a particular mindset. And the mindset that Paul endorses here is the idea that, that we need to pursue truth. And I think now for us as individuals who hold the scriptures, we need to engage the Bible with a willingness for the truth to shape us. Right? Notice again, he says, he says I'm working so that people have a knowledge of the truth. But it's not any knowledge of the truth, right? It's not just I want them to know certain things. I want them to be able to pass a test at the end of the semester. Now, I'm working so that they can have a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And what he is saying here is we've got to have a mindset where we don't simply seek to know the truth, but that we seek to be shaped by it. In fact, it's my guess that if you've had negative experiences in Christian circles before and church circles before, more often than not, those are caused by people who know the truth but aren't shaped by the truth. By contrast, see, Paul wants us to be people who engage the truth and now the truth that we have in Scripture in such a way that we allow it to shape us. And let's just talk about this at, at a practical level. What, is it, what does it take to be shaped by the truth? And, and how, do we, how do we foster that? Let me, let me just kind of mention two things. First of all, I think to develop this mindset, this pattern of engaging the truth, I think you need to value the corporate gatherings of church. You need, you need to value... You, the reality that, that, you know what, we, we're part of church. We're, we're in this together, and we need to value coming together as a church community. 
Because you see, it's, it's when we gather, it's when we come together on Sunday mornings that this becomes one of those places where we take time to, to open up the pages of Scripture, to engage the truth of Scripture in such a way that we are seeking God's Word to shape us as we listen and interact with these words. And I'll just say, if you want to know what is my goal, what's, the, what's my goal as a pastor in teaching God's word? What's the goal of the different individuals that, that speak and preach here Sunday after Sunday? It's our goal that as we open the pages of scripture and encounter the truth of who God is and what it means to follow him, that this will not simply be an exercise in passing along information, but that we are open to the transforming work that God does through his word. We're open to truth that is intended to shape us, to change us, to transform us. This is one of the reasons we encourage you to get into a group environment. This is one of the reasons we're going to be launching new Live, Love, Lead groups this fall. We'll be talking about that more as we go through the summer. We want you to get into a place where where with other people, you can encourage one another, pray with one another, but also engage the the words of scripture with a recognition that, that, that God uses this truth to shape us in very intentional ways. Now, having said that, I realize that now culturally we have more things pulling for our time. We have more things competing for our time. I realize that, that, that Sunday is no longer kind of a distinct day culturally as it was perhaps two generations ago. But can I challenge you that even though we have things pulling us in so many different directions and we have multiple commitments and our schedules get overloaded, can I challenge you to value the corporate gathering of the church? Because this is one of the ways in which we encounter the truth of God's word, the truth that is intended to shape us. And don't be fooled. If if you're not being shaped by this, you're being shaped by something else. If you're not being discipled by God and his word, you're being discipled by something else. This is part of the reason Paul is so emphatic that he wants to live a life where people are encountering the truth of God's word in a way that brings about life change. So at a practical level, I want to encourage you to value the corporate gathering of the church. And secondly, I want want to encourage you to value engaging scripture on your own. Getting into the rhythm of engaging God's word. This is why we're now starting a pattern of, you know, at least part of the year going through a series together to really encourage you to get into God's word on your own and providing resources to do that. And as you, you kind of engage God's word, whatever that looks like for you, I, I just encourage you to do it in a way where you're, you're asking good questions and where you're willing to listen, not just to learn kind of the content, but, but open to how God wants to use these words in our lives in transformational ways. So for instance, I think several helpful questions that I find just in engaging God's word are, are just these kind of basic questions. So what What am I learning about God? What what am I learning about people? 
What am I learning about living as part of God's plan? So even this week, I, you know, I was thinking about this. I, I just kind of started just reflecting on this open parag- open, opening paragraph of Titus. Thinking about this in terms of my own life, you know, okay, what, what, am, what am I learning about God? What am I learning about me? What am I learning about being a part of this plan that God now has at work? And that was just, as I was just kind of reflecting and meditating on the words of this paragraph, I was really struck by this phrase where God is described as the one who does not lie. It's an unusual way to describe God, isn't it? Typically in the pages of scripture, you don't necessarily see God described that way. And once again, I think the, the context leads to this. I mean, Paul is writing to Titus who is working in a context where there are all kinds of lies at work, all kinds of cultural mythologies and cultural narratives about how to get ahead, how to succeed. And in the midst of all, all that fog and chaos, Paul is reminding us, no, it's, it's God's story that is the true story. And it's God who is the source of truth. So I thought about that. And, and even as I thought about that, I also had to acknowledge I had to acknowledge that even as those people in Crete were susceptible to lies, I can be susceptible to lies too. And so so I found myself saying, okay, what are some of the lies I sometimes buy into that the truth of God's word needs to confront? And here here was the first one that came to mind. This is a message I think we get culturally, but, but the lie I sometimes buy into is if I just gain enough expertise, I can control my situation. Right, we, we live in a cultural moment that has wonderful opportunities to train, to learn, to grow, to get credentialed in all sorts of areas. But I think underlying that can be this message. If you just get enough expertise, you can control your environment. If you just get enough expertise as a parent, you can control your kids. If you just get enough expertise financially, you can guarantee your financial outcome long-term. If you just get enough expertise in terms of health and nutrition, you'll never have to deal with medical problems. If you just get enough expertise in your job, you'll never have to deal with hardship. And sometimes I buy into that. And so in in opening the pages of this text, I found myself realizing that there are moments where I need to be confronted with the fact that that's a lie. Moments where I'm perhaps so obsessed about gaining more expertise or leadership ability that I I forget that the promise of Scripture is not, I will make you an expert. The promise of Scripture is, I will be with you. And that's the difference. And and, and see, that's the reality that, that God wants his words to shape us. And once again... Realize this, this isn't just some take it or leave it thing because if you're not being shaped by the truth of scripture, you're being shaped by something else. So Paul has this vision. It's work in his own life that he's passing on to Titus and I think he's also ultimately passing it on to us. He wants us to live well, to, to see ourselves in the midst of this big story of God and in the faithfulness of God to his promises and to recognize that where we're at now is a moment where we need to allow the truth of scripture to shape us, to transform our thinking and therefore we need to build rhythms into our lives where we are intentionally exposed to that truth. So 
So even for those of you who are students, as you think about this next season, one of the things I'd encourage you to think about is how are you going to be exposed to that truth as you begin this next season? What will that look like for you in finding a church or campus ministry if you're moving away to school? Take that seriously. Now, very quickly, there's just one other thing I want you to see in this passage, and we're going to see this throughout the course of the book. As as Paul is wanting to train Titus to help people live well, the expectation is that as you live well, it's going to flow over into the lives of other people. It's not going to lead to isolation. It's not just a journey of personal piety, but it will overflow into service of others. So, for instance, in Titus chapter 2, look at what we read. As Paul is talking about how the grace of God works, he says, you know, right now we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says, now notice what he says Christ is doing. Christ is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people. But it just doesn't just stop right with kind of purifying us and enabling us to live lives of integrity, enabling us to live well, but to purify himself for a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Or you can translate it this way, eager to do good works. Here's one other passage that we'll come to in Titus chapter three. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who are trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing What is good? These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So Paul's vision, kind of his challenge to Titus is, Titus, I'm going to send you into this chaotic environment where all these ideas are floating around about the good life and all these ideas that you need to cheat and cut corners to get ahead. But in the midst of that, I want you to help people live well so that they do good. And over the next few weeks, Paul's going to show us what that looks like. So my question for you is, are you ready to listen? Are you ready to learn? Are you ready to grow? Because this this lesson to live well and do good is something we need to hear if we're graduating this year, but it's also something that we need to hear if... We graduated 50 years ago. Paul says, this is how you can navigate that crazy environment around you. Live well and do good. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we start this new journey through the book of Titus, I I pray that And even though it's a short book, we'd be open to the the fact it really does pack a powerful punch. Father, I pray that we'd be open to the different ways in which this book brings us back to allowing the good news of Christ, the gospel, to become deeply rooted in our lives. Deeply rooted so that, that we really do live from the inside out. Deeply rooted so that we see ourselves as part of this bigger story. Deeply rooted so that in an ongoing way, the truth of Scripture is is changing us. And Father, deeply rooted in such a way that that it overflows into good works. Father, may we catch that vision of what this life looks like. In Jesus' name.